0: Oh well, good morning to you all. If you're new here, my name is Tony Hunt, and I am pastor here at LEFC. If you're not new here, you're thinking, is that Tony Hunt from LEFC? He's wearing a tie. Um, so occasionally you have to do these things, right? It's, it's just, uh, it's an appropriate Sunday. I found this tie Back in the early part of, of March, and uh, I said, that tie looks like a Christmas tie. And, uh, and so I, I bought it, and so I was shopping early this year. Where have you guys all been, right? But uh, no, seriously, this is a special week. It's a fun time uh, to experience traditions, and I recognize we're all going to be navigating those traditions uh, differently um, and doing our best. But uh, nonetheless, the story of Christmas remains. And it's our opportunity to continue to proclaim why it was a, it's a significant thing to be able to continue to acknowledge and recollect all that was accomplished on our behalf that began with his arrival. So we're going to be in scriptures today, and this is not going to be a shock to you. We're going to Luke chapter 2. So would you turn there, as this is the most uh, infamous of all the texts concerning the birth of the, child, uh, the Christ child uh, as it gives the most uh, definitions and understanding to all that happened that night. So it will be on Luke chapter 2. And today I'll be reading in the NIV. And, uh, and then on Christmas Eve we'll be reading this text from the King James. And so uh, as that will be uh, the more traditional evening, if you will, for us all. Luke chapter 2. We're going to begin by reading in verse 1 and we'll go through verse 14. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that was taken place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, "Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those whom His favor rests." In this text, there are, that are very is very familiar to us all. There is some moment that we often blow past to not really understand the significance of what was just said. And it's verse 9, where it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. It brings a couple questions to mind. So, the angel of the Lord shows up, all right? So, appreciate that if you're working third shift, and I'm, I'm sure some of you have done that before, but if you're working third shift, usually it's thin pickings as to those who are at least active. Uh, some of them might be dozing off, but it's it's not a very lively group at that time. And things tend to go very static, the norm. Not much happens outside of the norm. And so A moment like this for the third shift, if you will, for the shepherds, having something so brilliant like an angel showing up was not expected, to say the least. But consider for a moment what it says in the text. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, but next phrase, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Was the Lord there? I mean, you have this angel, this creature that shows up that clearly is not the norm. He's a being. They can identify him as a being, but yet other. And then it says with the best description possible, now Luke is writing this from the account of many witnesses. And these witnesses describe this moment as this angel shows up that's clearly of the Lord and something around him that Was so glorious that it had to be of the Lord as well. So, an angel of the Lord shows up and the glory of God envelops them all. And what does it create? It creates terror. It's the strongest word that can be possibly used in the Greek language to explain the emotion. They were terrified. Think about it. When something shows up like you've never seen before, and then you see this glory that goes around it that clearly is other and beyond, it reveals much about what this being is and also much about what you are not. They weren't sure if this messenger was going to bring judgment or if this was coming with good news. So what does it mean, this idea that, again, the witnesses of this moment are sharing with Luke that this glory was such, surrounding this angel, that it created fear that we would describe as terror. Now, it's helpful to understand in the language of the Bible, both Hebrew and in the Greek, what the word glory means. As one Bible dictionary describes it, is that it's the glory of the Lord is like this weighty importance of a shining majesty that accompanies the presence of God. So it's important, and it's heavy, it's significant, and you realize it in the moment, and it accompanies this majesty that surrounds the actual presence of God. So while this angel shows up, that clearly they could identify was from the Lord. And they were able to ascribe that as such because of the glory that shone around this angel. Clearly, there was a weighty presence there. A majestic, visual, stunning moment for sure. But they realized they were in the presence of God. There was a presence of God that surrounded that angel that was such that it caused fear. Not only fear, but terror. Shining majesty, we would love to see it. But my guess is is that if we were experiencing that moment, we would want to see, but we would also be likely to hit our knees and cover our eyes. Glory. Weighty importance. Majestic, because it accompanies the presence of God. So when we think of the term glory and how we might even use it today, it still carries the connotation of unique, special, and yes, awesome presence. I've shared even recently about my love for history, and in particular, my love for history around the Civil War and World War II. And and I shared a story a few weeks ago about World War II, but let me draw something back to the Civil War. There are many things I love to study about the Civil War, and, and I study a lot about the Battle of Gettysburg because there's much about leadership you can learn from the study of all the various leaders and how they respond to the moment while in this battle At Gettysburg. But in the the overall war of the Civil War, there was another storyline going on. It wasn't just about brother against brother or nation within nation fighting itself, but it was over a set of ideals. And that's what makes the story of the original black regiments of the Army of the United States First coming into fruition in the Civil War special. A movie was made about a Massachusetts regiment. This movie is called Glory. It's called Glory. And and to draw out the meaning and understanding of the term glory, let's consider why they would call this movie Glory. It's because at the time when this regiment was established... It was not received by much of the military as being good news. It was fortunate that there were important people with authority that could make decision to say, the color of skin does not determine whether somebody has valor or capacity to defend one's rights. President Abraham Lincoln had enough confidence in that which was right And the authority to be able to initiate these new black regiments. The story of this regiment from Massachusetts receives the term glory. Because when they had faced all the ridicule for being a second rate unit. Merely because of the color of their skin. All of that went away in a particular moment. When they were met on a battlefield, for the first time, they were able to engage an actual defense of the cause. It took place on a fort that was along an ocean wall. They had to attack along a beach line where they would be exposed to cannon fire the entire way. The white soldiers watched from afar as these black soldiers were going to lead the charge. Something they had never seen with their eyes. Men of color, representing the same flag, attacking a fort that was off in the distance. Now the movie is called Glory not because a battle was won that day on the battlefield. Quite the opposite. That regiment was annihilated on that beach that day. But it made an everlasting impact of a greater battle the battle of a human being in the eyes of God created equal. It told a story. And for those who watched, because there were people from all parts of our country there to see this happen, there were, yes, reporters marking the moment. And what they could utter was simply glory. Because the presence of this regiment at the front or the tip of the spear of the army was a presence they had never seen before. And it was awesome and it shone brightly a new set of values. So glory is an appropriate term as it describes something that was unique, weighty, and held presence like no other. So when those who would account for a moment with an angel to say that this angel was an angel of the lord and that the best description that they could give was that the glory of the lord shone around them and it created terror it's speaking of a glory that is beyond anything we could describe here on this earth it's a word that captures that which the language cannot capture So the term glory is written throughout the scriptures, from beginning to end, in fact. And I would like to make a case that glory is the primary biblical narrative of scripture. That the primary biblical narrative of scripture is that we are called to give glory to God. And that the glory of God is the primary storyline of anything that we could ever write about in Scripture or of our own lives. In Scripture, from beginning to end, in at least in the in a New International Version, it is listed 349 times under the term glory, glorious, or to glorify. 349 times. And don't assume that it speaks more of this in the Old Testament as compared to the New. In reality, it's quite balanced as 199 times it is written about in the Old Testament, 155 times in the New. And when you consider the magnitude of the Old Testament as compared to the New Testament, it makes it nearly even. So to say that the primary biblical narrative is the glory of God is not a stretch. In fact, the presence of God and who he is, is the storyline from the beginning. Consider the creation of mankind. We are created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God. The earth is created with the fingerprints of God. So glory is something rooted in the very moments where God uttered breath. And said, time has begun. So the presence of God is unlike anything else. So when you encounter the presence of God, it's difficult to capture with words how you would describe the moment. And then to describe how you felt when you experienced that presence. Fear might be certainly the moment and the description. But awe usually accompanies Whatever emotion we say. Consider Moses for a moment. Moses being the leader of Israel from Egypt to the promised land. In that point, when he was called to make this reality of leadership known, the burning bush moment happens. Moses encounters the glory of God by a bush that is not being consumed by the fire he immediately is drawn to the holy moment and takes his shoes off as he knows it is holy ground. And as he's encountering the presence of God, he realizes how inadequate of a man he is. And then when God says, I am sending you to be my mouthpiece, my leader to the people of Israel, to lead them from Egypt back to the promised land, Moses felt inadequate. He felt short of the glory of God. And then when saying, how will they ever believe me? How will they ever know that I'm from you? God gave him some signs that he was able to utilize to show that the power of God was with him. So Moses is sent. He goes back. Those signs are utilized and he's now leading those people across the Red Sea and into the wilderness. The people forget all the miracles they had seen just days before that allowed them to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh. They also had quickly forgotten the crossing of the Red Sea that was miraculous beyond words. And they are quickly allowing themselves to begin to worship other. As Moses had left them to go and worship on the mountain of God, known as Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai Moses was gone too long for their liking but what happens is beyond even their own descriptions because in Exodus chapter 34 they describe that when Moses came back from being in the presence of God that there was a radiance to his face That the different ways of trying to describe it, the Hebrew terminology struggles to describe it. This radiance is shared in other parts of scripture and talking about, and there's not a consistent way to describe it because how can you describe something that's not of yourself, that's not even human, but yet similar, like? It's a glory beyond description. So the people see that Moses' face, just because he had spent a few days with God, his face was radiant. They knew he had been with God. The glory of God was around him. Think about it. If just for a few days it transformed the countenance of Moses, the glory of God, imagine what thousands of years would do to the countenance of an angel. The brilliance, the radiance that would come upon the presence of an angel because they had been in the presence of God. People knew that Moses had been with God and and they could see it on his face and therefore they leaned in, they listened, and it allowed his leadership and influence to continue. The presence of God if we abide there, can change your radiance, your countenance as well. Hang out with bitter people. Your face looks bitter. Hang out with people that are worshiping God. Your face changes. Somebody that abides deeply in the presence of God by worshiping in song, by being in the word, by praying along with other saints... It changes the attitude, the face. It, ex- it begins to exemplify the glory of God. So true, the presence of God and His glory can be revealed in us. In His creation and in the work of our hearts, He reveals His glory Isaiah, who had this amazing encounter with seeing the throne room of God, describes many things about the glory of God. And he makes many statements that are important to hear now. He first begins in in Isaiah chapter 43 by saying that you and I, being created in the image of God, were created for the glory of God. He created us unique as compared to anything else in creation. So that his glory could be manifested more brightly by us. He wants the world to know that, yes, the glory shows up in all of other parts of creation, but nothing like those made in his image. We have a face. We have a reasoning, ability to reason. We have the ability to choose. We understand morality. We make choices based on morality. These are things that are part of the markings of God upon us that show the glory of God in part. So we're created for his glory to show that glory to the world. And it says in Isaiah chapter 6 that the whole earth is full of the glory. So all of creation shows his glory. Imagine the most incredible places you've visited on the face of the earth and you've are face-to-face with something so majestic that you can't help but just say, there is definitely a God. There is definitely a God. The most majestic moment I've ever experienced when it comes to seeing creation was the first time I got to see Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe. It took my breath away. And the only thing, I didn't even plan this, it, it was spontaneous, and in the moment, the only thing I could begin to do was sing. To God praise. On that same trip, being on a mountain, watching the moon rise so quick, I was led to Scripture. Psalm 8, as I had shared this past summer, just came pouring from my lips. The glory of God was evident in His creation. But again... As beautiful as creation can be around us. Nothing is as powerful in showing his glory than those that are made in his image. And when their lives are transformed and changed by the presence of God. The glory of God shines most brightly. You see Peter says this. That our words and our service are a work of God's glory in and through us. Glory of God. Shown by human beings. But for what purpose? Paul calls it this way. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says that in whether you eat or drink, which we're going to be doing a lot of that this week. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, we're to do it to the glory of God. Showing the presence of God. Letting the presence of His work in our lives be seen in those moments. That yes, even while we're eating and even while we're drinking, even while we're doing things that are mundane tasks, the glory of God can be shown and shown brightly. As I said, the primary Biblical narrative in the text of Scripture is the glory of God. In fact, when you look at some of the greatest statements of those who have studied the Scripture, consider the Westminster Shorter Catechism when it says, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man, our sole purpose is to glorify God And enjoy Him forever. John Calvin, saying something similar in his commentary, says this The final cause was that we might glorify His name by revealing the riches of His grace and of His boundless mercy. You see, for those who call upon the name of the Lord, who've experienced His transformative work in our lives, when we speak, things that we've learned from God, or we live out the things we've learned from God, we are becoming a part of the conduit, the the work of showing the glory of God because grace becomes evident in us. Because people know you're not perfect, but yet I'm seeing something in you that says other. I'm seeing mercy abound in you, and I know that doesn't come from you. When these things happen, glory is being seen upon you, but that glory then points beyond you. So yes, the chief end of all of us is to glorify God and enjoy him. But we glorify him best when we show the riches of his grace that has been extended to us by the way we live and by the way we speak. The boundless mercy becomes evident. I want us to turn in our Bibles to John chapter 17 to understand this more fully, what it means that God has given us glory and what it means to actually receive that, but also to give. John chapter 17, we'll begin in reading in verse 1, but I want to give you context as you're turning there. This is a prayer. It's the longest prayer In the New Testament. And it's prayed by Jesus. And he's praying it hours before. Even moments before he's arrested. And therefore hours before he's crucified. So what would Jesus pray in such a moment? So he says this. Verse 1. Father the hour has come. Glorify your son. That your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people. That he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God. And Jesus Christ. Whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth. By finishing the work you have given me to do. And now father. Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. He starts his prayer with saying, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. So Jesus petitions the Father to receive glory so that he can give glory. So the purpose of Jesus' coming was to bring glory to God. We just said the chief end of man is to give glory to God and enjoy him forever by revealing the riches of grace and the boundless mercy that God offers. So too, Jesus came. To bring glory to God, we were created for glory to give glory, to show that there is a God, that it's unmistakable that as you look at creation, you know there is a God. Paul says that there is so much evidence of the glory of God in creation and with us in particular as human beings that man is rendered without excuse. To knowing and believing that there is a God. Because the glory of God is so evident. And so yes, our purpose is to bring glory to God. And so too, Jesus came. Not to just save you. That's, that's looking at it just as from your lens. No, Jesus came to bring glory to God. And the way he brought glory was to save you and I. Because that's what the Father wanted. So by doing the work of the Father, he was giving glory to the Father. And he says that in verse 4. He says, I have brought you glory by finishing the work you have given me to do. But verse 5, he says something that, that, again, just speaks to who Jesus is. When he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I have had with you before the world began. You see, Jesus was no stranger to the glory of God. He had always experienced fully the glory of God, being one with the Father. But now he wants the world to see it on great display. Lord, glorify me with the same glory I've had with you before time began. But he speaks to something greater. He speaks to even this idea That, Lord, you're giving me glory so I can give you glory. But then he hints at, and Lord, I'm going to give that glory to others. Look at what he says starting in verse 20 of John 17. He's still praying. He's still talking to the Father. And he says this. He says, Father, my prayer is not just for the disciples, who he just spent time praying over the disciples. He's not saying it's not just for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and I. So now he's praying about us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them. And you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus prayed that for you and I. He prayed that as God has given him glory... And that the two of them have had unity together by him saying, Lord, we have had glory before time even began. But so that the world will know that we are one, Father and Son, and that this glory speaks to that. I am now going to give glory to the church. To those who believe in me, I'm going to give glory to them And he petitions for it. Keep in mind, we were created to glorify God. We were created with the glory of God. But we're also given a purpose. That for those who come into relationship with Jesus Christ. As Lord and Savior. He gives us glory. It's the glory he shares with the Father that he passes on to us. But in the same way that Jesus didn't just receive glory for himself to stay there, to show off the glory that he had. No, he allowed that glory, which comes from the presence of God in his life, to receive it so that it can be shown so that others can experience it. So he prays for you and I to receive that glory so that we can then Express that glory. Bring glory to Him by talking of a grace we've received and speaking of the mercy that keeps coming every morning. By doing so, the glory we receive goes right back to the glory where it's sourced, God Himself. We're called to give glory to God. We do so by being in His presence. It's an awesome calling and blessing to be invited into the family of God. We've been praying that people will continue to experience the presence of God so that others can see. More than ever, the church should be spending time with God. More than ever. Because what the world is offering right now is bitterness anger, frustration, fear. What God offers, love, hope, peace, and joy. Choose your list. And I'll tell you, it's not even a choice. But for the one who grabs a hold of the glory of God and says, I want to be near Him, it will transform you. You'll receive glory only so that you can show glory, so the world can say, truly, Jesus is the Son of God. There's no other way you can explain the transformation I see in that person's life. When you put glory in that context, the majestic, awesome presence of God that can lead to fear or awe, it helps you appreciate how this text is concluded in Luke 2. Because when the angel finished speaking to them about the good news of the Christ child having come, fellow angel shows up. And what did they say? Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace will come to those who experience the favor of God. Peace will come to those who experienced the favor of God. You see, what I've learned in a unique way over the last few months is many people over the last several months have given their lives to Christ and we've been baptizing them. You're going to hear more of those stories coming in the weeks ahead. But what they keep talking about is when they experience the presence of God, they experience peace in its wake. You see, when you come into the presence of God, there is that awe, there is that reverence, that fear of his presence, and recognizing he is God and I am not. But when we surrender and yield to the presence of God and submit to his glory, peace is in the wake. Peace is in the wake. So the angels understood this when they said, glory to God. Glory to God in the highest heaven. And peace will come to those who experience the favor of God. Let's pray. How can I even measure with words your glory, God? It falls short. You desire to be seen and known for who you are. You want people to know that you are filled with grace and mercy. Motivated by love, but tenaciously holy. And as a result, not given to the temptations we are given to. You're consistent. You are trustworthy. And when we encounter you, and if we abide there, it will change us. So God, I pray in this moment that your glory would be revealed to even the most pagan of hearts here in this room. As you say that even the pagans can begin to declare you as God when they encounter people filled with the glory of God. I pray that that will happen in this moment, whether at home or here in the room. And I pray, Lord, peace will be in the wake. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing to the glory of God. cool thing is he is here he is here and his coming is to the glory of God and to reveal it to the world so on that night when they are making the announcement after thousands of years and knowing that there was going to be a child to be born that is going to crush the head of the snake and give victory to God and his desire to reconcile man to himself. The beginning of that story being known happens on that night. And how do you announce it? it? You send an angel that says to a group of shepherds, he's here. And this is good news. And glory is going to go to God for all those who receive him. It is our privilege and pleasure to glorify God wherever our feet take us, especially this week and in this, this season of time. If you'd like to pray with someone concerning this, our encounter room to my left, your right, is available. If you're at home, you can email us at uh, LEFC.net, office at lafc.net, and, and we will respond back to you and engage you. We want to talk to you concerning the glory of God. It's an honor to bear this story that we share with you today. And so in this week, it is our prayer that you'll experience the glory of God, that it'll radiate on your face and lead to discussions that'll help others encounter the glory of God as well. That is my prayer. And as part of this week, how we can help you best is we have our Christmas Eve services at 3, four thirty, and six. Here in the room and live stream. We have invitation cards. You can invite people to them. Those cards are directly out in the lobby. Or you can come pick them up on Monday from the office. But we would ask that if you know how many are coming to get tickets, those tickets are also available here at the office or at the connection counters out in the next to the baptistry. We want to make sure we have the, the right amount of space for the people to have a safe Christmas Eve service. And they are, believe it or not filling up, which is good news. And so we invite you to that. Hopefully you'll enjoy that either at home or here. It will be a special night and we are going to glorify our God. Having said that, I dismiss you under the glory of God and to praise him forever where we get to enjoy him for eternity. Amen. You're dismissed.